Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. On this week's episode, I am joined by the design journalist Lin Yi Ryan. Lin Yi is the founder and editor of Mold, a really fascinating digital and print magazine about designing the future of food. Lin Yi previously worked as an editor at the design site Core 77. She worked for T Magazine and Theme and has written about design and art and food for publications like Food 52, Design Observer, Cool Hunting, El Decor, and Wilder Quarterly. In this episode, Lin Yi and I talk about how her interests in design and food overlapped and what we can learn about the intersections of these two fields. We talk about how writing for Core 77 shaped her lens into the design world, why she started Mold, and the decisions she made to produce a print publication, as well as how Mold both enters into and subverts what we think of as a design magazine or a food magazine. We also talk about how community ecologies and indigenous wisdom shape so much of how we should be talking about food today and what we can learn from those ideas in both food and design. If you like this show, I hope you consider supporting it on Patreon. We offer three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and $10 for super fans. All of these tiers give you access to all sorts of bonus content like a monthly newsletter, early episodes, full transcripts, and exclusive bonus interviews, all while helping to financially support this show. So if you like scratching the surface, if you want to see it continue, I hope you consider joining us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the details and to help support the show. Thanks for listening, and here is my conversation with Lin Yi Ryan. I want to talk about Mold in a second. I think a lot of this conversation will be about Mold, the publication that you've been running um, for a while now, almost 10 years now. Um, But before that, I want to talk a little bit about you and your background and how you got in into all of this and so I've heard you talk about writing for Core 77 and kind of coming across a story there that you know kind of made you think about the intersection of food and design Uh, and so I'm kind of interested in what interests came first for you maybe even pre-Core 77 were you interested in in design or food or how did those actually become interest for you? Food has always been um, intertwined with my sense of identity. Mm. As a first generation Chinese American, I grew up in Texas. And, um, you know, food was our family's love language, we would gather around food, Um, we would, you know, drive across town to go to the Chinese supermarket every week. Um, You know, every community event, there was food, there's church lunches, there Mm -hmm. was, uh, you know, Chinese New Year feasts, there was dim sum, there was Chinese bakeries. I mean, it just like, endless, Mm -hmm. endless kind of ways of thinking about food. Not only that, but my father, um, who is, he's an engineer, (laughs) he's a chemical (laughs) engineer, um, and not like the most emotive human, but one of his his two biggest passions in life are gardening and fishing, both that are very Mm. much connected to kind of knowing where your food comes from. Mm. And so growing up, I would go out fishing with him. Um, One of my uh, proudest moments was in like elementary school. We were fishing and I caught a stingray and then we pulled her onto the boat 
and then she gave birth to stingray babies on our boat. <laughs> it was like insane. Wow. And, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, picking strawberries from the garden. My father had a persimmon tree that he was like obsessed with even today. Mm. Um, you know, uh, during the spring, my parents were uh, here in New York um, just helping me w- prepare for the birth of my second child. And my father was like obsessively checking in with, with his friend because he had this guava tree that was like <laughs> getting ready to like produce fruit. And so I just always had a very, um, like food was always just like this, this theme in the background of my life. Um, so I would never, I, I wouldn't even call it an interest. It was, it's definitely like a, a, a starring kind of character in the story of who I am. My mother uh, is also a dietitian and nutritionist. And so, um, you know, I very much just grew up understanding that uh, food was something beyond uh, just nourishment and um, that there was science behind food and also just being Chinese. Um, my parents, although I wouldn't say they practice traditional Chinese medicine, I think anybody who is first generation has understanding that food is, uh, very much connected with our health. And so all of these things, um, really play into the way that I think about food and the idea that I've always had a relationship with food thanks to my parents and my community. I almost didn't ask that question because I just assumed food was was kind of always the first one. So where did where did design come in? I saw that you st- you you went to Columbia, you studied Asian American studies. That's right. Um, and then and you you've written about design and design related things for a variety of publications. How did uh, how did design come into this this story that you're telling right now? So I didn't even know that design was a profession um, Mm. until I moved to New York. And in my first year here, I interned for one of the first social media companies. Um, It was called Asian Avenue. Mm. And I met a group of young designers. And I basically thought they were the coolest people (laughs) I had ever met in my entire life (laughs) because they worked for themselves. They had this, um, you know, great this like amazing office on the lower east side in that school building um that now i think is a community center um they worked for themselves they would like take weeks off to go like snowboarding um they knew where all the you know great clubs and bars and restaurants were and i just was just so enamored with their lifestyle And more than that, they were just making art, basically, like in my mind. I mean, you know, they had client work, but I just, growing up in a kind of um, middle class uh, immigrant community, I had never met a designer. I had never even thought that there were people in the world that were trained and then paid to like make things um, and I, I I just was like, my mind was blown. And so, <laughs> and so that was kind of my first introduction to design. And from there, I just, I, because I was obsessed with magazines from, you know, the time I could basically read, I uh, started working in magazines and other media outlets and just met more and more designers. 
And so just through that, uh, I, I just had this, the utmost respect for design, um, and, but really more for designers as these, um, kind of arbit, like, you know, these, these people who just had like the most exquisite taste and knew about the coolest music and could also talk about art and, um, made, you know, what I thought was basically commercial art. So how did you start writing about design or where did you realize that this was a subject that, you know, without being a designer, you could like be professionally in this world, you know, you know what I mean? Yep. So, um, in 2000, I would say 2006 or 2007, I started working with a magazine called Theme, and mm. it was and still is probably my favorite magazine of all time. Mm. And it was founded and run by a couple that were that are both designers. And um, through my relationship with them, I started working full time with them um, as a managing editor for the magazine, and they just taught me so much about the art of making magazines, but also gave me permission to write about designers and design work. Um, although I didn't have, you know, I don't have any design training. And I think that just, I just learned so much from them. And then through theme, um, I ended up at core 77 because okay. one of the, uh, editors at theme who I also just happened to work with, um, who I had first met, at Asian Avenue and my first internship in mm. 1998. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I had known Rain who, uh, since 98 basically, and then worked with him again at theme. He has been, he's been like the first contributor at core 77 still is the contributor of course at core 77. And it's kind of the voice of core 77. He told me about a job opening there and, um, I applied for it, not knowing much about the, publication and um but just loving kind of the way that they worked and they trusted me to manage the the website and I really credit my work at Core 77 as the real kind of turning point where I just totally fell in love with design I fell in love with the way that design as a profession um, was kind of, it was constantly, you know, in flux because um, specifically industrial design was at a huge turning point at that moment. Um, iPhones had really just hit the market and the, this kind of idea of dematerialization um, was really kind of scary for industrial designers, like these people who their whole jobs is about materializing ideas and objects. And so I was just totally engrossed in the conversation around, you know, the purpose of design, um, you know, the future of design, it's, uh, it's importance or is it important? And, um, you know, I'm still very, very, very much uh, interested in the way that designers see themselves in this kind of crisis moment um, 
that we're facing right now. I guess really thinking about how designers see themselves in in precarious moments or precarity, period. I'm wondering if you think being at Core 77 and kind of coming into design through that lens, how that shaped how you see design or what it means to be a designer or what it means to write about design? Absolutely. I mean, coming into a understanding of design through the lens of Core 77 is completely instrumental in my story because unlike other design publications out there, Core 77 is a site for designers and it is fully focused on process and design as a process. Um, You know, the discussion boards at Core 77 are fascinating because (laughs) it's really designers speaking to other designers about their interests, about, you know, their needs, about resources. And I think that if I had come through another design publication, I may have just stopped at the idea of design as an object mm-hmm. or design as this finished thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that because Core 77 was always very much interested in being critical about the process, um, I just always thought of design as a critical field. And mm. I think now that I am, I teach at Parsons, I think about how design is one of the few professions out there where critique is really central and being able to explain your process is very central to the work. Um, I I don't, maybe not in kind of client relationships so much, but I do think within design education, the critique piece of it and the process driven nature of how to explain what design is um, is very much, uh, it's, it's very important to, at least to my, yeah. um, to, to my hopes around the future of design, um, because it is about a process because the constant examination of that process is part of design education. Um, I, I find design having, there's a lot more space in design to be flexible to be inclusive, to shift kind of the narrative. And I think that that's, to me, the most exciting thing about writing about design. Yeah, I think I think that's, that's really well said and actually helps me sort of think about mold and how it, it's a really nice context for how you, how I see you as thinking about mold. And so, so mold is a, a publication started online and then in 2018 you launched the printed that's right so 2016 we launched the kickstarter and the first issue came out 2017 okay and it's really easy to talk about mold as like a magazine about design and food i've heard you talk about it as the a magazine about the future of food how do you describe mold now or, or what's your like tagline for mold or your like top line you know yeah. elevator pitch um mold is an online and print magazine about designing the future of food can you talk about how how that idea sort of germinated while you were at Core 77? Sure. I was um, an editor there and I was traveling to, you know, Milan and Beijing and all the different design festivals and, um, you know, 
really scour, scouring the internet on a regular basis and pitches. Um, and I started seeing uh, an influx of, I would say, primarily student projects that were looking at the intersection of food and design. And I was just fascinated by these these idea these projects, um, you know everything from you know designing tableware to uh, designing you know processes to uh, collect or produce uh, food, and because design, at least within the context of education, is about problem solving. Um, you know, these students were really interested in like, well, how are we going to feed ourselves in the future? And, you know, like, how do we like decrease obesity uh, amongst developed countries? Um, you know, it, it was just, it was just fascinating to me. But at the time, nobody was really writing about these projects because for the most part, design outside of course 77 on the web on the internet was really like furniture and lighting right um and so i just started writing about those things i was you know some of like one of an early project that i thought was so fascinating was um a group of design students were think were trying to figure out what a post uh carbon kitchen might look like Mm -hmm. so using materials like terracotta and other types of kind of more traditional or ancient ways of storing food, they were like, what would a, a kitchen look like without a refrigerator? And I just loved the materiality of that project. I loved the final form that they took and I loved the thinking behind it. And, you know, again, nobody really wrote about it. I mean, it was a student project, but um, I just, I just was really, uh, fascinated by the work that was coming out. And so because of this gap in coverage, I was like, well, I am obsessed. Well, I don't want to say obsessed. I, I, I would say, <laughs> you know, food is very much part of my love language and I can yeah. definitely write about food, although I'm not, I would never say I'm a food writer. Um, so I started, I was like, let me just start a little place that we can just write about food design and maybe it'll just be like an archive of food design projects that are coming out right now and and maybe I'll start like a discussion board where food designers can talk to one another so it was really more about taking the kind of heart of what Core 77 does which is to provide a online space and resource for industrial designers um, but to think about that for what the potential might be for food design. Maybe like the question behind the question is, I'm curious, you had this post at Core 77, um, you know, where you could, I mean, maybe you couldn't, I'm, you know, could, could you have uh, written about these things on Core 77 or on an existing uh, publication or a food publication? I'm kind of curious, the decision, you know, thinking this is a new thing. This is, this could be its own site or its own publication. How, how did you think about that? I absolutely could have written about it at Core 77. You know, I was so lucky to have um, work with people who really, you know, trusted me to write about those things. But at the time, I was just really, like, I wanted a little, I'm, I'm somebody who always likes a little side hustle, you know, like a little side project. 
And so I just wanted it to be like a little nights and weekends project. It was supposed to be like, speaking of blogs, it was supposed to be like a blog spot. Yeah. yeah. And, um, or I was like, maybe it'll just be a Tumblr page or something. It was very um, kind of, it wasn't supposed to be anything serious. But thanks to a friend of mine, I was introduced to a designer who had just left his full-time position um, to start his own company. And uh, I was like, hey, can you like just customize this WordPress theme for me? And he was like, yeah, sure, I could do that. But honestly, like it might take the same amount of energy for me just to build you a site. And I was like, okay, that's cool. And so we worked together and he built the site for me and... I just came out of the gate looking very professional. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, and Andrew and Brandon, um, the design development team behind House of Two Hundred Seven, they built the first site, and then they ended up relaunching the site in twenty twenty one, early twenty twenty one, and so that's what you see on thisismole dot com now. It's interesting to hear you say that you saw this originally as a as like a side hustle nights and weekends and then working with these these designers and you had this sort of kind of professional sheen you know right when it launched. I'm I'm curious about sort of the evolution of of its goals of like of what you wanted to do with it and sort of the the increase in ambition and the reason I asked that is I, I came to the site later. It was probably right around the Kickstarter, a little bit before. I remember mm-hmm. when the Kickstarter launched and I had known of you and of the site. But how did it evolve from just a thing you were doing to uh, collaborators and contributors and, um, you know, a sort of full-fledged publication? How did that all happen? You know, it's always been a collaborative project. I've been really lucky mm-hmm. that people... Um, were able to kind of believe and see in the see the vision for what it could be uh, before it was really anything. So, one of my earliest collaborators is Perrin Drum, who mm-hmm. you know through AIGA Ion Design. Yep. Um, she and I had worked together in various ways, like uh, whether it was her writing for Core Seventy Seven and me editing, or me writing for <laughs> her uh, when she was at Condé Nast and she editing me. And so I told her about this project, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm just looking for. I need like like a editorial partner in this because um, it's hard for me to maintain the the momentum around it, and I need somebody just to like share ideas and be accountable with." And she, you know, was up for the job, and so she and I. Uh, she was my earliest collaborator on the project. Mm. Um, and I, and then, you know, uh, we launched uh, our first design collaboration with uh, Joey and Cena at um, Visibility, and mm. we created a, a picture with them. And so, you know, Mold has always been very much a collaborative project. And I think that for anybody who's ever made a magazine, you know that making magazines is probably one of the most collaborative things that anyone can really do. Um, you know, I, I always joke that there's, there's, I mean, I don't even, it's not really a joke, but I don't think that there's any, there's, there's no such thing as a magazine made by one person. Right. Um, yeah. And so I, I would, I always say that my professional tribe is actually people who love to make magazines. Mm. Um, and so although, mold launched online 
I, I was really resisting the idea of making a magazine because I was very intimidated by the idea of making a magazine in perpetuity. Um, I was very intimidated by the cost of Mm -hmm, making mm -hmm. a print magazine. But in 2016, I had been doing, you know, I had been writing online under mold for, you know, two and a half, three years at that point. And I was like, nobody understands what food design is. (laughs) (laughs) People still don't understand what this website is about. And I was like, well, you know, the thing that makes the most sense to me is to make a design object that is actually shows people what food design Uh, could mm -hmm. be. And so I conceived of this six run, six issue limited run print publication that would explore different facets of what food design could be. And so that's why it was always conceived as a thematic print project and with a limited run of six issues. That's really interesting. I wanted, I had a, a couple questions about the, the print run, but you said something in there that I want to c- go back to for a second, where you said that um, nobody understands what food design is and no one understands what this website is. And this is something I was thinking about as I was thinking about you and thinking about this conversation is what's always been interesting about mold to me is that it sort of goes against the expectations of both what both a des- what you think of as a design publication and what you think of as a food publication that's right it like it like challenges and subverts both of those yeah and so i was curious how you thought about audience and how you thought about with subverting both of those how how that was received or like how you how you kind of thought about building that that audience can you talk about that a little bit Sure. (laughs) Um, I think mold was always conceived as a provocation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I guess I have to admit that it's a bit in my personality to be like that. (laughs) Um, When I was actually thinking about names for the magazine, you know, again, this was like 2012, 2013 that I started thinking about this or I was like oh what about mold and I spoke to a whole bunch of friends of mine and they were like why would you do that like (laughs) why would you make a food website called mold and I was like exactly because Mm -hmm. it's not a food publication it's a design publication and molds are the forms that produce objects and on an industrial Mm. scale and like mold also is this kind of transformative thing within the food system. So I always kind of meant, I, I've always been a bit uh, like pro provocation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so as far as audience is concerned, again, it was originally conceived for food designers. And so I felt like food designers would get it and food designers were and still are um, a very small, (laughs) small audience. But as I started writing, um, I realized that our audience should be all designers because um, through the work of a student design project, I found, or I didn't find out, but I learned that we were facing or are facing 
kind of inevitable food crisis. And I say this now in, you know, post pandemic or, you know, post 2020, and it seems like a no brainer, but Mm -hmm. in 2012 or 2013, nobody was thinking that we were on the cusp of a food crisis, but the United Nations was like ringing the alarm bell being like, okay, listen, everybody in 30 years, we're not going to be able to feed ourselves if we continue eating the way that we do now. And I was just totally, totally shocked as somebody who loves food, <laughs> loves to eat. I was like, how is this even possible? How are we not like falling out of our chairs right now trying to resolve this? And, you know, this is like the era of like avocado toast. This is the era, <laughs> right, right. you know, like of like, this is pre millennial pink. This is just like such a insane time. And I just, it just was completely um, devastating to me that nobody in the food media was talking about it. Nobody in design world was talking about it. And I was just like, well, you know, I have this thing that I do. There's really no better place to talk about this. And so why don't we talk about how design might offer solutions for the coming food crisis? And that was this pivot to Mm. the conversation that we're invested in today. I'm curious about this this move from exclusively digital or online to print. And you talked about it being a way to sort of explain <laughs> explain yourself maybe a little bit or right. to, you know, to kind of kind of present this in a different way. I'm curious what else in the process of making this printed publication, how did that change how you thought about mold or what mold could be? I think that's a great question. I realized that mold i would say first and foremost i i would say that the the kind of scope of and, and the mission of mold has shifted since the first publication of the magazine mm. and um you know i i now see the magazine almost as like a you know 5 year long maybe even 6 year long uh design research project mm. and um you know, I, I, I hope that the audience who has been with us from the early days of the print publication and the online publication has also been able to kind of follow along this trajectory from, I would say, more provocative, speculative design projects to where we are right now which I see as a really urgent call for people to engage with the food system as creators and co-creators in the food system. Um, How do we design hyper-regional food systems that support hyper-regional cuisines? And I think that this question is obviously not one that designers can answer alone, but I think that in the context of the ongoing crisis of the pandemic, um, the kind of visibility of how unjust the world is and how um, just uh, inaccessible our food Mm -hmm. system is that people can see themselves in this kind of matrix and like 
think about ways that they can actually shape it um, for a more just, you know, present and future. You set up exactly what my my next question was going to be because I wanted to go back to this sort of you know tagline about designing the future of food and this question around the future of food is really interesting to me because I think oftentimes when we talk about the future of anything, we're really just talking about the present and issues of, you know, of the present, which I think mold is doing. And I think it's really easy, especially when we're talking about the future of food to think of lab grown meats, to think of uh, technology, to think of, you know, I don't know, Soylent and, you know, all of this type of thing. And, and you cover that a bit, but, you know, you also are talking about, I mean, you just, you just wrote a, a, a piece that really is like a nice framing to you talked about, about food ecologies and sort of community economics. And you're talking about sort of uh, returning to historical ways of thinking about these things. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that evolution and about sort of the balance isn't the right word, but sort of the, the holding, the, the tension between technology, new innovation, and also, um, you know, these sort of old indigenous ways of, of thinking about food and how those live together or work together in some way. Sure. Um, I would, I'll just start by saying that I think that oftentimes when people talk about the future of food and they kind of immediately go to this techno future mm-hmm. or a homogenized future of like, you know, Soylent or you know, meal <laughs> replacements or whatever, yeah. I think they really miss out on... I think one of the most fundamental pieces of food, which is that food is culture mm. and food is, you know, multi-sensory and joyful. So mm. when we talk about the future of food, that should be our starting place. Like how does the future as, you know, you or I, or, you know, Jeff Bezos see it like mm-hmm. fit into this very foundational thing about our relationship with food right and Mm -hmm. so i think that should always be the starting point um and the technological pieces of it i think are important because you know we have the science to um change how we produce certain types of food or certain types Mm -hmm. of nutrients or proteins or minerals or vitamins or whatever and i I think it's important to use it. But what I do see about kind of a techno future, food future, is that it is still owned by companies. It is still owned by a singular entity. And it does not empower people who are actually eating those foods in any sort of way, it still sees food almost as like a, a, a like a just a nutrient um, formula, and I think that's very very problematic. Um, I think that it's really really important for food to be a our relationship food to be liberatory, and we see this in the ways that um, Native Americans and indigenous populations around the world are really advocating for food sovereignty as a foundational uh, piece of their own liberation. 
because what is, you know, liberation without being able to um, have agency over what you eat and how you eat? So that's kind of one of my first kind of arguments against the techno, like techno foods. Like it's like, who owns that technology, right? And also a lot of highly technical food solutions are still so energy intensive and still use old industrial models of extraction to produce, again, kind of a singular vision of what we're going to eat in the future. I don't think that solves anything for anyone. It's just replicating the same failed systems that we see um, from our food system. So, you know, big ag, uh, big food, it's just all trying to kind of feed us like a singular thing. (laughs) And it's always going to um, prioritize profit over people. That's not... That's not the food future I want to participate in. I have a really big question that I want to make sure that I ask (laughs) correctly. And and I want you to know that I'm not asking you for a very specific definitive answer here. Yeah. Um, But I, I, I think... This is a blanket statement, which is why I'm I'm like nervous, kind of nervous to ask this question. I think the designer's impulse often is to look for those solutions, um, and and is to think about new and and the innovative and and the technology just just because of the way design education is, because of you know kind of where designers are and where the money is and all of those all all sorts of, of things like that, um, and something that comes up on this show a lot is this idea of sort of the designer savior complex, you know, that the designer can kind of come in and solve a bunch of things and then, you know, and then move on. And I'm curious where you see the position of the designer in this future that you're talking about and how to both blend the new with the old and the, and the community and, and all of these things that you're talking about. Do you know, you know what I mean? Like how how does the designer not just do, not just paper over something to make it look like a solution, uh, but actually kind of participate in this? Well, you know, let's just start with the fact that design education has been very much steeped in kind of a colonial construct of Mm -hmm. the role of design and, and specifically industrial design, right? Like where, you know, man and machine, man is just like a a piece of the machine or like this kind of argument for human-centered design. So, you know, humans should, we we should be designing for humans only. And that human is (laughs) a white 20-year-old male, right? Right, Like, so I think that just recognizing that the roots of, um, many kind of uh, design education programs is a colonial project, I think is the first thing that we need to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but also, I think that there are so many interesting designers who are working in a way that says, actually, let's talk about designing with, as, a, as opposed to designing for. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about designing for not human-centered design, but more than human design. Yeah. Yeah. What does that look like? And I think that is actually the most exciting work that's actually happening in design today. Um, I, I mentioned that I teach uh, design um, at Parsons. And one of the kind of foundational texts that we 
read is Alice Rossthorne's design as an attitude. And I think that that's such a great place to start that like maybe the most critical thing you can do as design as a designer is not designing anything at all. And, you know, one of the powerful pieces of being a a designer is that a, it's a profession. So you are taught within an educational context, the tools of your trade and B that you're taught to ask the right question. So whereas, you know, I can only say this because my father is an engineer, but like engineers are talked to be, get the most efficient way from getting from point A to B designers are like, Oh, we actually need to back up a little bit. We need to do interdisciplinary research. So we need to talk to experts across the field. Um, but also the experts of, in, in my argument, who are the people who will actually be using this design and then ask the right question so that we know what the right, the problem is that we're actually trying to solve. And so because designers are taught to be systems thinkers out the gate, I think we're, we kind of have a leg up uh, from Mm. other types of professions that um, allows us to be critical um, that use, uses critical thought um, as very much part of the process. So there, the fact that we can say, you know, industrial design and the way design education has been taught has been colonial and everybody's like, yes, nodding their head and okay. It's like, wow, okay, great. Like, yeah, I'm glad yeah. we can all agree to that and be critical. Now, where we go from there, you know, that's up to, you know, the designers to ask that question and ask the right questions around that. But I do think that just starting from a place of critique and from reflection and research um, is really, really powerful. Let me let me ask you that question that you just kind of posed there about what we do with that information. Let me ask you that for yourself. What's next for you or what's next for Mold? Where do you see all of this work going? So we are starting a nonprofit organization Mm. and it's really about taking the work that we've been writing about for the past, you know, eight years and looking at it, uh, seeing how it works in practice. And um, I'm very scared. I'm very uh, unclear (laughs) about what that's going to look like. And so, um, you know, I'm just kind of jumping into the abyss a bit, but I'm very, I also just feel so excited about the opportunity to think about design as a seed, uh, specifically in the community that I live in, which is uh, Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and thinking about how, you know, it's easy to write about things, right? Like, it's good, it's easy to be critical and sit on my computer here in Brooklyn and be like, blah, 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 like, (laughs) you know, people's projects. But it's a different thing to actually be out in the community and use design as a lever to engage people in my community and be like, what do you need? Like, how do you need it? Like, what can we do to, 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 to be part of this conversation? Um, I, I was, I, I had an opportunity to, to participate in a reading group last night that we were reading um, Dean Spade's uh, mutual aid uh, book. And I was just so, um, I was just taking all the notes and I, I, I really 
hope that the nonprofit that we started will be able to take the learnings uh, from mutual aid and put that into action. So, you know, one of the questions I have is like, well, what is a mutual aid model for design look like? Like, how could we, what are the, 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 what's the scaffolding of that project? Um, one of the projects that we teach in my class is uh, we talk about the architect Teddy Cruz's uh, projects on the border between the United States and Mexico and just how powerful his way of viewing the world is. I mean, he is uh, an architect and so many architects are just so specific about what they're building, you know, like, and Teddy Cruz, his project is about building the scaffolding and allowing the communities themselves to determine what the built environment looks like and how it works for them. And so I really appreciate that perspective and I'm thinking very much about how the work that we're going to participate in, in this nonprofit that we're building um, will similarly provide a certain and kind of scaffolding and allow our community to be, um, you know, self-determining and um, have agency over what that food system might look like here. That that sounds great. So you said you're you're not totally sure what that looks like or how that sort of lives in the world. Where are you in the process of of developing the nonprofit? So you know, I think that well, we have, we're like incorporating, <laughs> we okay. have a board <laughs> okay. and I have an idea of what our first project will be, but, um, really I see this first, you know, the coming years being asking the questions, right? Like what do, what does our community need? Um, what are, who are the people who are doing this work in the community now? How can we support that work, um, through design and, you know, I don't know what the answers are yet because we haven't quite embarked on it, but I'm trying to learn as much as I can from people who are doing this work in other places, designers who have already piloted different types of programs and, um, you know, just uh, really trying to be open to, to what comes. I think that that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned from mold is that, you know, you can kind of have an idea of where, what you want to do and where you want to go but just being open to the ideas, the, 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 the work itself shaping itself is, is, is quite exciting. I think that's a really nice way to wrap up this conversation. So I'm going to ask you the last question that I use to end all of these. I'm just curious what you're reading right now. You mentioned you're in a reading group and you're reading mutual aid, but what else is, uh, what else is on your reading list right now? Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, I mentioned that I'm a new mother, so I have a lot of things on just backed up yeah, in my reading yeah. list. Um, I can, let me look at my, so I have, um, I've, I've been reading Emergent Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown. Yeah, so yeah. I, I just reread it this summer, but I'd like to kind of revisit it now. Um, I am reading, uh, this book called bringing the food economy home. Mm. It's, uh, it's basically about local futures. It's, it's by, uh, this woman who kind of coined the term ancient futures, mm. um, and, in 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 heads this nonprofit about lo- local community, uh, economics. 
Um, I started uh, uh, Robin Timmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass about two years ago. (laughs) I would like to finish it. And um, I have the most recent issue of Dean Magazine. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, It's issue two. Issue three is coming out, but I need to finish issue two, which is about pedagogy for a new world. Right. Right. And you were, you were in the first issue. I interviewed the Dean. Oh, great. When yeah. That came out. They're amazing. Um, um, I was, uh, I, I was part of their online issue. So yeah. Right. I, That's right. That's right. Yeah. And um, they're incredible humans and I'm so thankful that I get to call them my friends. Yes. Yeah. Um, that is a, that's a really nice reading list too. Uh, this was such a great conversation. It was so nice to hear about kind of how you think about this work and also where you see this all going. So thank you. Uh, thanks for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks, Jared. I really appreciated uh, the time. This episode was recorded on January 24th, 2022. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon. You can find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>